Welcome to Creating Common Sky, Conversations in a Fractured World. Join co-hosts Wendy Root and Julia Van Dam in their musings and their conversations with modern-day wisdom keepers as they explore issues that are fracturing our families and communities. Discover insightful ways to reclaim the light and laughter from the global shadow. Remember, reclaim, rejoice, relax. Thank you for joining us for part two of our interview with Alexi Torres. In the first part of our interview, Alexi told us some formative childhood memories, rich with a unique belief in the connectedness of this world we inhabit. She states simply and powerfully that we belong to one another, even strangers. We are connected and deeply responsible for one another. From her story about her grandfather eating around the outside of his plate so that he could always offer to anyone who came to the door hungry food that had not touched his mouth. To her mother's belief that whatever you do not need does not belong to you. It belongs to others. It belongs to God. It is clear that her fundamental orientation is far from the rugged individualism and capitalism that dominate our discourse today. Her fierce grounding in non-separation may be the key to her grace and insight in her work with communities and the process of awakening. The particular form of Christianity that was prevalent in her native Puerto Rico was liberation theology which orients a person's purpose and relationship to the divine in a uniquely human way. As Alexi relates it, if I cannot live into the fullness of my humanity and the dignity of my humanity, then I cannot live into the fullness of my divinity. That is what we are meant to be. I am delighted to be back again with my co-host, Julia Van Dam and with Alexi Torres for the second part of our interview. So it's it's interesting to think about, um, you know, when when someone does have the other signage that basically says you don't belong here or mm-hmm. or um, says something that makes clear that their politics don't include your version of of how you want to show up in the world. Then all of a sudden they they are actually seen by you as the other. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I always have a deep curiosity because, because for me, in, you know, approaching things from sort of a Taoist point of view, you can't actually change how other people think or how other people feel or the, the world at all, but you can change something in you. So when you, when you run across people who are either um, objecting to your work or have signage that says you don't belong, whether because of you being a, a, of a certain race or because of your political views. What, what do we do? What can we do? How do we sit with, with that in a way that even if we feel othered and villainized by, by those signages, is there a way to create connection and to not return that 
that projection. Like I, I always, in, in moments like that, I always think of um, um, Nelson Mandela, who, you know, is put into prison and, and treated horribly for 27 years. And yet at a certain point, he, he states and he understands that his job is to treat everybody with a kind of dignity, with the dignity that they deserve just for being a human being, even if they have just mistreated him. Yeah. And to me, that was always such a larger than life kind of gesture. But yeah. do you find in your work or with, you know, neighbors who have closed doors or when you run into people that you feel are is projecting at you, where do you sit? Where do you go? What do you, how do you, how do you create connection there? Yeah. It's a great question. I first I'll say that um, it's interesting you bring up Mandela because that was like my political formation and blossoming was in you know um, in the story of the anti-apartheid movement. So that was kind of like the first level of awareness in the late '80s, early '90s. Um, you know, and I just like consumed all of the stories of like the Ash African National Congress and, and of Mandela and then of his experiences um, in prison. And I um, and I remember his being freed and speaking um, in at Yankee Stadium in New York in the Bronx, and I actually was able to go and hear him. So uh, a deeply it's a reminder of the people and their stories and how they form you and your stories, right? And so I will say this, there was a time where um, by nature, I was taught that if someone saw me as an other, then I had to do everything I could to shape shift into becoming what something that might be more palatable to them, right? Deny my beliefs, deny my politics, um, speak a certain way, dress a certain way, act a certain way. Um, that was deeply, deeply destructive to me, to my soul, and to my journey. And, and yet it was a part of my journey. Was that the corporate part of your journey? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, um, and so now I think that the greatest thing that I could give is to stand in my own sense of power in the dignity that I know that I have in, as Wendy always says, centering <laughs> in myself, right? So that you can receive my light in its fullness, right? I don't have to dim it. I don't have to diminish it. I don't have to argue its value. I don't have to argue its brightness but to stand in it in the presence of others. And I think that's an important thing. And I think that um, I would, I've never been the one to, you know, to battle, you know, to fight or to argue. Um, and yet I believe, I'd like to believe that I, I've learned to stand enough, enough in the dignity of myself, right? The dignity of my humanity. Uh, which is what liberation theology and my mother taught me um, so that I don't have to do that, right? So that I don't have to diminish myself and my light, 
by in a in a, in a way that tries to prove to you what I I know I already am and that I don't have to prove to to anyone. And I think that when you know it's like Marianne Marion Williamson's um, quote, you know, when you and speaking that Nelson Mandela quoted when he became uh, president of South Africa. Um, you know, when you allow your own light to shine, then you give others permission to stand in their light. And um, and so I, I'd like to think that that's that's those are the lessons that I've learned, right? That I don't have to, I can, and will not allow someone to harm me in the sense of like diminishing my humanity and my dignity. Um, in you know by action right i will def you know i would defend myself my family my children you know um but that i don't have to do that by diminishing my light i do that by standing in my power yeah i can really hear the um that mm. place where you return and you've talked so many times about that it's about it being sacred you know that you that you've answered a, a very um practical or out there in the world social question with a return to a stance in sacredness and that's so oh, beautiful yes. absolutely because you know when we look at our our the movements um, of healers i believe that people engaged in social movements are are like this to 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 you wendy in their healing work right it they hold a different stance they hold a different they heal in a different way but they're healers and healers do so because they understand deeply underneath that that we are sacred right and so and I've said this to you many times before, it's not a, a back and forth between you and I or you and the other. It's actually a side by side, you sitting next to me and saying, look, look at that. Right. That's that's a different stance. And um, I think that. When we say things like Black Lives Matter, um, when we say things like, you know, um, science is real or we talk about women and gender equality and all of these things it is if we hold them solely we hold our views solely as political positions as ideological positions then we miss the point the point is that i say black lives matter because because they're sacred right social movements protect what is most sacred about us and so when I am able to do when I'm able to when I'm confronted with somebody that's coming against that. And I can stand in the knowing absolute knowing you there's no one you can't convince me otherwise right that life is not sacred, then there's a power a potency and a strength that is different than one that feels like an attack. Yes, I love that. Thank you for framing it that way. Mm. Thank you. Oh. So um, um, I'm, I'm reminded of, let's see where I, I had this, um, this quote. This is by Marilyn Ferguson, who is an, an American writer. Um, and, and this is just on the, the theme of that separateness and you know, how big that question of are we separate or not 
She said, uh, human beings have a kind of optical illusion, Einstein once said. We think of ourselves separate rather than as part of a whole. This imprisons our affections to those few nearest us. Mm. So there's a sense of, um, you know, in all your talking, I, I almost saw this sense of like, there's when I'm under attack, you know, and, and I can kind of go to my own center, but I, but I feel this hit at the boundary that's around me. And then in some of your stories of your of growing up, the boundary is actually way out there. It's not just the family, it's the whole community or anyone who shows up. And then, um, and then you talked about uh, being out there in your new home or, or seeing signages in, in people's windows. And, and there's a certain sense of, okay, you know, you, you believe like I do or, or we, you know, we're part of this clan, so there can be lack of separateness here. But this sense of like, can we really drop this whole illusion, this optical illusion that we're separate? Now we are, we are unique, you know, you are, you are one person with your experience and your body and your views and your loves and your tastes and I am someone else. It's not that we are, that we don't have our uniqueness, but there's something about being really being included in something that is the whole that like you said earlier it's not just about um uh it, it's really about what then do you have responsibility for mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and your responsibility goes out and includes all of that yeah. you know all of humanity all of the children the trees the owls the the whales, the atmosphere, and yet, you know, it's so much, it's, it's so instinctual in us when there is some sort of a threat to pull back to whatever the boundary is that's being mm -hmm. threatened. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, the other, I think I asked you this the other day, I was like, Wendy, when did, the, when did it start? When did we be, when was like that dualistic mind, you know, when it was either or power over? Um, and, you know, I don't have the answer to that. I, I just know that I think about, you know, um, whether it was 2000 years ago with, you know, the, um, the Roman Empire and, and Christianity and or whether it was 500 years ago and the colonization you know of my people and my communities and here you know there there was something that happened that created that where we had to tell our, us, ourselves a story that we were other that we were separate right we've had to tell ourselves the story that the earth is other that the earth is doesn't be you know that it's something else it's something to be conquered it's something to be dominated it's something to be extracted from um because if we under really understood our belonging to it and to each other we would not and could not be capable of doing what we do to each other mm -hmm. so i think that part of i don't have the answer but i do think that part of it is examining the narratives that came with colonialism, with imperialism, with white supremacy, 
um, with patriarchy, right? That created the conditions where people to feel that in order to survive, in order to have, that they had to have some sort of power over and that, that somehow the idea of, of power with, the idea of community, the idea of belonging no longer felt like it was protective enough. And so we went into this other mode and we've reached a point where we know that we can't survive like this anymore. We're literally killing each other physically like in Ukraine right now and, and the earth. We cannot survive without this uh, a real deep spiritual understanding of our entanglement, you know, yeah. um, from from the very beginning, you know, from like quantum, you know, I'm not a quantum physicist, but from the Big Bang to, you know, to this reality right now, we, you know, we can do and this is why too, you know, the fight, like the political fight, um, while I understand, you know, it's necessity in some ways, because what I see it doing is it's providing triage in some ways for a dying system. But we we need to provide triage because too many people would suffer if there wasn't something right. So there is a fight to shift systems, to change laws, to compel people to be decent and kind to one another, right? To pay people a decent wage, etc. And so while you know that's been much of my work and I've been deeply engaged in it, I also recognize the illusion of that, right? The, because ultimately. You cannot, Martin Luther King said this, you cannot legislate my dignity. And it's not until we have an, a deeply sacred transformative, not transactional, not a legally transactional experience, right? Of systems change, but a deeply sacred transformative spiritual experience where we, change, where we can change here that ultimately we're gonna be able to, to, to save ourselves and take care of ourselves. And this is why, while I believe in, you know, doing what I can to protect the people that need to be protected now, I also don't hold on to the illusion that that's ultimately going to save us. And so while I'm doing that, I'm always still trying to reach for what I call radical imagination about what it can really be and what we really need to do and always leaning into that. And this is why I think that we, born into this moment in human history are uniquely prepared to hold that liminality, to be in that liminal space of the, we know, we know that we can just like, that's not gonna work anymore, but we're not where we wanna be yet. And so we have to be able to, to be, you know, bridge builders and we have to be able to be bridges of compassion, of love, uh, of change. And we have to also be able, and you taught me this, Wendy, I remember, be able to feel like we're free falling and not have any of the usual reference points to hang on to and trust trust that we're going that we're that we're we're chosen right now to be able to hold that in between space of the yeah. not yet so yeah. in in a nutshell what you said about meeting people without in one sense, othering them or without knowing where they stand politically or socially and really just seeing their humanity and meeting them with kindness. That is something that we and our listeners 
can strive to do. It's just very yeah. tangible. Yeah. Or, or we can bake blueberry scones for everyone. <laughs> you know, and we can try. And that's not to say, again, like I don't want to, um, you know, there's a, a term spiritual bypass where we kind of just say, well, we're going to bypass all the hard stuff and just kind of move to like being nice and loving each other. Because there is a reckoning that needs to happen. And there is, you know, there is work that needs to be done. And there are bodies uh, and, and people um, that need us to stand up for them and defend them. But what I'm saying is that it's about our posture, right? We don't have to do that. Um, and this is not a judgment against those who do necessarily feel like they, they, you know, they have to lay down their lives and they have to, you know, there has to be that fight. You know, who am I to, to, to make that judgment? I'm, all I'm saying is that I think that we have to be able to hold both in this moment, constantly radically doing things like what you're doing here, having these conversations about how we shift understanding still that tomorrow like i've got to be i've got to you know i've got to do the right thing by my community i've got to protect the people i need to protect and i don't need but i don't need to do that by you know in, in at least personally in a way that is about othering i i love what you said about um you know this luminal space this space in between because as long as some of the uh, the wounding that's been with us, and I would say it's more like five thousand years, you know, I would I would put some of it, and and maybe even further back than that, because it's it's wherever in history it happened many times in many different places, where a people was taken from their connection to the land, where they were the land was their mother and they belonged to it and they nurtured it and it belonged to them and there was this mutuality and you knew all the animals and the and the woods and you wouldn't it you wouldn't dream of destroying it because it was your home and your livelihood and your your mother and and throughout history whenever there were conquerors they would come and they would take a people and where they didn't just kill everybody, they would take a people and they would move them 500 mm -hmm. miles or a thousand miles and and plant them on a different piece of land where they had no umbilical cord, mm -hmm. right? And then And then what happens is when you get severed like that, you don't have, um, you don't have that immediate, heartfelt connection and it's much easier to just be transactional with each other and with the land and then to for you to go and do that to another group of people and and to spread that around and so to find a way you know we and this is part of what I really want to do in creating common sky with these conversations is to find out what are those really deep beliefs that we still hold so you can you can do all this this work um you know legislating or getting protections around people who really need to be protected but in some sense if we still really believe like uh it was uh, clinton who said you know it's the economy stupid right that and and to me it's like oh right there is this this basic piece that is so fundamental that 
that you have to take care of the economics of it and you have to make choices that are right for you. You know, invest in that company even though that company is pouring pollution into your water or, you know, that, that you know, to, to find what are those beliefs that hold us in a place that even if we, even if our hearts say, yes, everybody should be treated equally, everybody should have an equal chance, everybody should, you know, be honored and, and welcomed. But then when you make your choices, it's like, but there's not enough for me. Or, you know, I have to invest in Amazon because, uh, because that's who's making money. And if I don't do it, I'm going to be left behind. And we have, we have engendered through 5,000 years at least of history this squeeze so that so that that belief is is the one that kind of undoes all of the good thinking and all of the the heartfelt movement and and you know it's like yes that's nice but I need this job right right well because the opposite of love is not hate the opposite of love is fear Yes. And so when we act in these ways and we contract, um, we, we're acting out of fear and we're acting out of, of, you know, stories. And I find it really interesting, too, because I do think that in this moment in human history, we have so much that we can learn from communities that have actually, you know, suffered for a long time have been at the margins for a long time, right? I don't think, you know, our our academics and our politicians are the people that are gonna save us. Those are not the stories that we need, no. right? Our businessmen are not gonna save us. I really do think that, a, you know, a, I think about the, the context in which my grandfather had the capacity to say what he said and do what he did. Uh, or that my mother and my community had that capacity to bring others in, right? Came from a place of deep, deep, um, from their own suffering. But it was a place of suffering that taught them that they had to take care of each other, right? They because maybe because they didn't have the option to contract in fear in another place and get a great job. So there was something about that, right? There is something about not that I romanticize suffering or poverty or anything. Um, but there is something about the capacity to deeply know these things. I think about Puerto Rico, you know, I, I went right after the, um, the hurricane and um, brought, wanted to bring healers and other um, folks to the island. And what I found was that on the island were people had created what they call Centros de Apoyo Mutuo, 17 mutual aid centers in different parts of the island. Schools had been shut down because of the austerity measures and were abandoned. People, cold communities went in, opened the schools, broke the locks, and started cooking for each other, taking care of each other. There were cleanup brigades. 
you know, and this is an impoverished, you know, nation, you know, nation, I'm going to say nation, even though we're a colony of the United States, but an impoverished people that still in that showed me, right, what you were saying, like they are, they, they still live within this ethic for the most part, right, the same ethic um, and the same value system and the same spirit that my, my grandfather had. Um, and that enabled them to do to for that to be the response. I'm not saying that there were not other people in, you know, in power in, on the island that had other responses, economic responses, etc. What I'm saying is that what we have to learn, this is why I say it's so important to sit at the feet of, of people in community, people who we think don't have power, people who we think are not smart enough. You know, I learned that lesson through my father. My father had a third grade education. My father's job when I was growing up was I'd come down the stairs and my dad would be washing urine off of the walls on the stairwells and in the elevators, right? To the, to the world that I was going off into, right? The David Rockefeller world, someone like my father with a third grade education who spoke with a Spanish accent, who had issues with alcohol was powerless. But on the day that we, um marched um for um because our church had been torched by drug dealers and we had done this work um to um to try to address the issue of the crack epidemic epidemic in the neighborhood it was my father who was there right it was busloads of people from communities across the city it was you know immigrant women and men it was the pregnant teen it was you know the teenager with the pants down you know down their bottom it was like all of the people that the world said were powerless were what stood there in their own power from the margins to the center um speaking in their own voice for themselves and that for me radically shifted my notion and my understanding of power. Because with all due respect, the people that I worked with on Wall Street did not come in on buses to stand with my community at that time. Um, and so it really, really is um, just, just a moment, I think, where if we could begin to listen to voices that traditionally have not been listened to, and, and really just to be a witness to what it is to stand in their power, you know, to, to, to create in the, in the worst of disasters, 17 mutual aid centers with brigades serving community, you know, in a place like Puerto Rico after so much devastation. Like that to me is like the spirit of Gregorio Ortiz, my grandfather, alive and well, that narrative, that story still alive and well, thankfully, because we haven't had the opportunity, you know, thankfully, um, to buy into the other story of separation. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. That's so powerful. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, it, it means the world to me and to have you as our first guest. Um, and, uh, and I hope we have you again soon. I'd be so happy to, and I'm so honored to be here. I've heard you talk about this vision and this calling, Wendy, for a while. And I think 
part of this work right now is each of us stepping into what it is that we are being called to, right? What is being downloaded to us? It may seem crazy. It may seem like, oh, people are gonna whatever that, but it's that what you taught me, right? We stand strong in who we are in our sacred center. And then we can moving from that, we do what is ours to do. And that's what my, my prayer is every morning, God, what is mine to do? And the response is always do what I put right in front of you today. Like, don't worry about the big <laughs> changing the world, Alexi. Do what, take care of who and what I put in front of you today. And I, that's what you're doing in this. And so thank you. Oh, I love that wisdom. I mm -hmm. take that okay. with me. Okay. Thank you. So, uh, Alexi, I want to make sure uh, that that we're going to put up on our our notes um, so that when people go to the podcast, they can get some notes. So I want to make sure that your Jubilee is listed and the soul of the um, soul, soul of the movement. Um, so do those have uh, is that the soul of the movement dot com or or. How? No, there is no soul of the movement website. It's a okay. Jubilee website. Okay. Um, and so I can share that with you. And I wanted to share, and I don't know if this is the case, but this is the correct spelling of my name. There's an E on the end. Sometimes I get, and I, I know it's autocorrect too, so maybe it's just autocorrect, but I just wanted to make sure. It's also me that doesn't know how to spell. The correct spelling. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You have other redeeming qualities. <laughs> okay. Okay. Alexi, thank that you, was thank amazing. You, thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you so you. much. It was so, yeah, it's good to talk. Really, oh, really good to talk. You have so many really powerful stories. And um, and I really appreciate how you just, you bring it back to standing in your own power and shining your light and not being afraid to just be. I think it's so powerful. Thank so. you. I'm working on that in this moment. You believe it or not telling my stories and believing that they're they should be shared and talked about um yeah is still something that makes me tremble and makes me nervous and so but this it's part of this moment right that's part of what yeah. I'm, i know i'm being called to do but it's so it's so important share. because the resonant like your whole resonance and and the feeling that you share it's such a gift and then it brings things up like i i hear you talking and it brings ideas and thoughts up in me and it's it's a joy so thank you well, so that's much. the gift right that we can embolden and, and embolden each other yes each other yes wendy's been emboldening me fast <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> wendy me too <laughs> and now she's taking care of my girl too yeah. so so one okay. of the things about the stories i'll just say one last thing is yeah. when it, it is true when you talk about those stories and the light shines out there's a way in which the the magnetic attraction is I mean, it's so evident. Oh, right. You don't need more to be happy. You don't need to, you know, work yourself to the bone or to accomplish these things or to arrive at this other space. And, and I think we're so driven as a, 
as a, a culture to think that, well, if I, if I get the house on the lake and if I get that new car and if I just have enough to put my kid through college and, 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 and yet then we become really slave to those things. And when, when I listen to you tell your stories, they're just open and inviting. And it's like, yes, back to this joy, back to this, this truth, back to this connection. Yeah. And so, and I think this generation is getting that, you know, Gen Z and millennial too, you know, like the great resignation is just a small symbol of like, I think some, some deeply held like awareness that like how we've done it, um, it, it doesn't work, right? Ultimately, it has led to so much decimation and destruction. And so, you know, there are some in you know in with with a different mentality that are like oh well they're just lazy and i'm just like no there's a spaciousness there there's an opening there that creates the capacity for an awakening to happen earlier in their lives because i think you know for my generation it was expected like you do whatever you do and then maybe when you retire like you have enough space and time for like some spirituality and 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 a a level of consciousness you know and an awakening and I think young people, like our world just needs that now. We can't wait till they're 50 years old. They need that now. And so I look at people like my daughter and, and, and other young people, and I'm like, yeah, there's, a, there's an invitation to an awakening now. And I think if we can help usher that, if we can help welcome that, as opposed to shut it down and say, no, just get back to work or just da da da, get back to the survival. And thank, thank goodness for their resistance to that, right? There's just a, a knowing that I think is just part of their sacred makeup that is necessary for this generation. Yes. Truly, truly. Thank you for listening. These conversations can't happen without you. If you've enjoyed the show, please share your enthusiasm by recommending us to a friend. If you're interested in learning more, please go to creatingcommonsky.com, where you can find notes and any links we've promised you. And remember, breathe deep and rejoice.